Welcome to Left Out, reality-based uh, independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper, and today's program is produced by John Katruba. As ever, listeners are invited to call us uh, on, uh, on the air at 412-268-9728. You can also send bo- uh, email to bob at leftout.info, which we'll monitor during the show. Or you can even join the AOL chat room called Left Out Two Words uh, during the show and uh, chat with us online while we're uh, uh, during the progress of our, of our program today. And any of those forms, we're very welcome to have. Uh, li- listeners are very welcome to call in. I wanted to mention, uh, starting out today, before we get to going to the remainder of our program, uh, some of our listeners may be interested in the fact that uh, John Abizade, uh, who is the uh, for, uh, the former, uh, uh, I forget his exact title, the commander of Central Command, whatever that, uh, yes, it says here, the former commander of U.S. Central Command. So he was the guy in charge of U.S. Central Command, which is in Doha, or Central Command refers to the central, the Middle Eastern region of the globe. There are several commands um, he was in charge of that from uh, 2003 until 2007, I believe it is, which means that he uh, was the uh, person who was primarily in charge of the uh, delightfully successful and unexpectedly lengthy triumph in Iraq uh, that has been uh, continues to go on and will probably go on for the rest of my lifetime. So Abizaid is speaking. Okay. Abizade is speaking tomorrow um, at Carnegie Mellon uh, at 10:30 a.m. Uh, in uh, let me see where where the uh, where this is. I don't see straight offhand. My guess would be it's in the Rangos uh, Rangos uh, uh, Auditorium or the uh, excuse me the auditorium here in the University Center, which is called McConomy. Sorry, I've got the wrong name, uh, but I'm guessing there. You'll have to check the location. But 10:30 tomorrow uh, at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon. I will not be able to be there because I'll be traveling tomorrow, uh, going away to a conference. But I would say uh, uh, Abizade may uh, certainly deserves to be questioned closely uh, about, his, uh, about his policies and behavior during, the, uh, during the, 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 our triumphant invasion and occupation of Iraq. Okay, so that's it for announcements. Uh, today, we're very delighted to have uh, a guest as a guest on Left Out, who is uh, Professor uh, Harry G. Frankfurt, who's a professor emeritus, a retired professor of philosophy from Princeton University, who's written in the last couple of years two, I must say, personally speaking, delightful uh, little books that are really, I would say, extended essays. Uh, one is called, uh, excuse my, uh, excuse my language, but one is called, quite frankly, on bullshit. Uh, and the second, which was in some respects a follow-up to the first, is called On Truth. And I read these two books uh, a couple of weeks ago. I got around to them and enjoyed them so thoroughly that I thought it was uh, useful and important and fun to have Professor Frankfurt on Left Out. So, Professor Frankfurt, uh, welcome to Left Out. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so, uh, uh, Professor Frankfurt, I'm Danny Slater. Uh, you, you missed the introduction of our show, I think. So I'm Danny, and... Uh, the person who just uh, allotted your books is named Bob. So I wondered if you could start out, Professor Frankfurt, by uh, by uh, by perhaps um, summarizing. Uh, maybe it might be useful to go in chronological order, or whatever you like. To start with, on BS, <laughs> and if I re- uh, and I wonder if you might summarize the main thesis or point of the book to give uh, our listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to read it yet an idea of where you're coming from, what it's about. Well. I started out with the idea that I, I started out with the realization that although I had been using the term uh, bullshit quite freely in the course of my life, I didn't really understand exactly what I meant by it. Uh, and I thought that as an analytic philosopher whose, uh, whose job it is to analyze the um, concepts that we employ that we don't clearly understand, that I would try to, try to get clearer about just what that concept is and just what I meant by applying it. And what I, what I concluded after some analysis was that uh, there's a difference between uh, bullshitting and lying, that uh, lying is a matter of uh, saying something that you believe to be false, whereas I, my conclusion was that, about the bullshitter that he doesn't really care whether what he says is true or false, that he's indifferent to the distinction between true and false, that he's interested in another He's engaged in another enterprise than that of conveying either truth or falsity. 
uh, he wants to make an impression of a certain kind on the people who are talking to him, and he will, in that in in the course of in the pursuit of that, um, creating that impression, uh, say whatever he thinks will be effective in, in in doing that. So the question of whether it's true or false is really of no particular importance to him, uh, unlike uh, the liar. And it seems to me that 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 poses a a, a greater threat to. Uh, the uh, fundamental values of civilization, even than the liar does. The liar, after all, recognizes the importance of truth, and he's trying to um, conceal the truth or to deflect people's attention from it. The bullshitter doesn't really care about the truth. He doesn't really think it's an important concept. He doesn't think it's an important value. Uh, he just is indifferent to the distinction between true and false in a way that the liar is not. The liar cares about the difference. He's just on uh, the wrong side of the game. But the uh, the bullshitter doesn't really care about the difference at all, and it seemed to me that that uh, poses a, a, a that uh, how shall I put it a greater threat. Uh, it undermines our uh, the uh, the solidity or the strength of uh, certain values that are important to civilization civilization even more than lying does. So that's I think. I've covered the essential points about the first book. I'm, I'm sure I've left out some things, but oh, okay. Well, I um, the first one uh, uh, make a suggestion that our station manager made, which is to use the word BS as an abbreviation. Now that we've introduced the the true term uh, okay. on this radio station, <laughs> that the reference is to use a an abbreviation for the word. Um, but one of the, the question I have uh, is, I, I know the book had a couple of examples in it. Uh, there was one example involving Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, and there was another example of, uh, about some advice given uh, in a novel. Uh, uh, gosh, I'm not sure I can remember the exact quote, but what I would, I, we could go into those examples, but what I would, uh, what I think for our listeners would be would be interesting uh, would be also to, uh, for you to give examples in contemporary public life. If you've been, I, I assume you follow the news and other sort of public discourse that goes on in this country. Um, is there something, uh, or a particular person or a particular uh, event or or anything in, in which BS was was, was just, you know became uh, it, it stuck out in your mind as as the real what was really going on. Well, I can only answer that by saying that uh, it seems to me that uh, political discourse in this country is almost essential, almost entirely uh, BS. That there's hardly anything else uh, going on in it. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, uh, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but that, that's my that's my impression of of public discourse in this country that it's almost entirely BS, and that there's very little concern about whether what people are saying is true. It's very very little concern on the part of people who are speaking whether what they say is true or false. They're interested in attracting voters, or they're interested in selling products, or in selling people, and um, that's what is really governing them rather than a concern for uh, truth or even a concern for falsity. Yeah, so so I, I on the web page for our, for our um, show today, I wrote up a, I guess I, I've <clears throat> I think the book is, is an excellent, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really great book for what it is, but it occurred to me that from my point of view, what I wanted was uh, maybe kind of a, classification of a whole series of different techniques, rhetorical techniques that people use. And you've uh -huh. mentioned uh, in the book you analyze lying and, and BSing in great detail. But it seems like there are other things that, that other categories of things. And I can mention a couple of them here. and Maybe you could comment on how these relate to, to the BS. Uh, one is uh, something that's now commonly used. It's called trolling. And this is a common technique in chat rooms. I don't know if you frequent chat rooms on the Internet very often, but Trolling seems to be uh, a technique where you basically go in and say something which is simply outrageous but completely, uh, but you don't even believe it yourself. But you take an outrageous position just to piss off the other participants in the chat room. Uh -huh. um, so that, that's not really BS. Um, it's, it's, is it? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But it's another, well, it sounds like it's the way you, from the way you describe it, you don't really care whether it's true or false. You're doing it in order to produce a certain impression or exactly. certain reaction. Right. So another another example was something uh, that I don't know for the lack of a better word I'll call it innuendo, which is something Greg Glenn Re uh, Greenwald, who writes a blog on Salon.com, uh, pointed out recently. And I'll read you a little a couple of sentences from this description. He's complaining about uh, the uh, the right wing uh, punditry and right wing um, 
uh, bloggers. And he says, they love to spew out vague phrases filled with obvious implied meaning, yet they virtually always lack the courage to explicitly state what they are trying to convey. They will say things like, it's time to get our hands dirty in this war, or we need to stop being so politically correct in how we fight, or it's time that there should be real consequences for those who undermine America in this time of war. But they are too afraid to specify exactly what they are advocating, even when asked to do so. So, uh, do, do you do you get the the drift of that? The meaning that he's describing it's it's you're saying uh, you're implying what you want in a vague way that that doesn't allow anybody to actually pin you down. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I I I I, uh, I recognize that. Yeah, it's not quite the same thing as, as BS. It seems no, to me. No, it isn't. Yeah. Um, you haven't mentioned one that I that I think about sometimes, which is spin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at one time, I thought I'd try to write something about uh, about the nature of spin, and I found it very difficult. Uh, one thing that struck me as a place to begin was uh, in distinguishing spin from BS is that we talk about uh, BS artists and we talk about spin doctors. And the, the, difference, the difference between artists and doctors struck me as perhaps significant in understanding the difference between the two uh, the two techniques. Uh, that the uh, the artist is more creative. He's making things up. He's producing something out of nothing. Whereas the doctor is trying to fix something. He's trying to uh, trying to change things from the way they are to the way they ought to be. And uh, that doesn't get you very far. But that that's as far that's as far as I was able to get. I'm afraid in in. Uh, in illuminating this uh, concept of spin, which is a fairly new concept. It's only, I don't know when it began, but maybe 15, 20 years ago. Well, closely related to that is Lakoff's uh, overused but now but uh, uh, concept of framing, which I think is a little bit similar, which is intended to be deceptive in a certain way by, by forcing your mind into uh, certain along certain channels uh-huh. uh, a priori so that you sort of don't notice uh, that you're being, well, BS'd, one might say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you th- had any thoughts about that. Well, I'm not really familiar with uh, with Lakoff's uh, uh, ideas, uh, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, avenue to start going across, along. So, in the conclusion of your of your first book, um, one of the things that I found most uh, engaging was your uh, discussion of of, of a, a kind of opposition between correctness and sincerity. And if I may summarize it, uh, the the famous uh, lampooning by Stephen Lobert, uh, Colbert of uh, of uh, George Bush's typical behavior at the White House press corps uh, dinner uh, mm-hmm. about a year and a half ago, kind of summed it up very well. That somehow, you know, well, it may be that you know. Uh, uh, that the, the that that Bush is, is is utterly wrong about everything, but the only thing that matters is that he's sincere. You find yeah. this very very often, yeah. and uh, yeah. you devote some time in your book to discussing that point. And I wondered if you might expand on that. Well, it it usually is made by people who who want to claim that there's no such thing as an objective reality, right. there's no such thing as real truth, and that the, uh, the the important thing is to be true to yourself. That you can't be true to the world. You have to be true to something. So you're true to yourself. And it's a matter of being uh, sincere rather than being accurate. And uh, and so I think you go on to analyze this idea of sincerity, uh, winding up with a particular conclusion. So I wonder if you might pick that up. Well, <laughs> uh, I know some people, a lot of people have called attention to that uh, final sentence in my book, uh, in which I say that sincerity is also BS. <laughs> Since we don't really know ourselves, we don't really, we're not really... We're not really very good at understanding what we are, what we're doing, what we're thinking. Uh, all we can do is uh, all we can do is uh, BS about it. So when we think we're trying to be as sincere as we can be, that is, say, tell the truth about ourselves, we really don't know the truth about ourselves, and all we can do is uh, say something that we think will be uh, will create the right impression. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're uh, we're computing us. We computer scientists are very aware of this whole problem of, of introspection because in computer science a lot of, of, of a lot of time is spent solving problems that humans can absolutely solve without even the slightest effort, yeah. and yet we're unable to get a computer to do those things. And so, like recognizing faces and things. Like yeah, that. and yeah. so right, so this idea that you can understand how you think, but based on just sitting there, sitting there and, and just pontif- you know sitting there and pondering it is yeah. obviously you know missing something pretty right. important. Yeah. Um, so in, in the second book, uh, we could go on to that, talk about that a little bit, on truth. Um, and um, the, um, I guess you, you, whoops. 
What's that? Uh, sorry about that. I don't know. Uh, well, you're still there. So here, here. the um, at the beginning introduces it by saying, "Well, you didn't. I guess you've forgotten to sort of emphasize in your previous book how important it, the truth is, yeah. and that you took for granted that people would would accept that as being the you know." Right. Uh, but but apparently that not everybody does. But it seems like a lot of it seems to be related to the deconstructionism and, and the sort of refutation of that. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little about about that aspect of it or? Well, let's see. What can I say? Um, uh, well, what we we we're familiar with the Sokol incident in which he, uh, the oh, physicist yeah. Alan Sokol published right. a, a hoax in a journal in which was full of completely fallacious uh, observations or... Yeah, totally spurious stuff, yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I think that one of the chapters I really liked was also in analyzing uh, the sonnet by uh, by Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, it's, it's a great chapter, because it's it, first you have the sonnet, which is like, you know, 16 lines or something. Mm-hmm. Then you spend the next 10 pages analyzing and picking <laughs> it apart, which... Shows you how densely, really, the meaning is is, is in is in that poem. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry about sorry that. Sorry about that uh, technical problem. I don't know the source of it. Sounds like somebody's dialing. Yeah, it does, but it doesn't. It's it's doesn't. I don't think it. It doesn't it, it, seem possible under the circumstances. So I don't. Okay. So I don't know where that's coming I from. Hope so. it's not coming from my house. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, it could be. But well, I you have, have no a, you I may have, have no a TiVo or some other device plugged in. But I don't think so, though. Oh, that's right. We do have a TiVo. Ah. So perhaps. Uh, well, Tivo yeah. should be smart enough not to not to call when the phone's <laughs> off the hook. Oh well, I think. <laughs> okay. Anyway, going up, Danny, go ahead. Do you want to? Well, pick up, I, pick yeah, up from yeah. That I, I, I guess I can't. I can't really. I mean, I, I had some observations of my own, but not nearly as cogent as what is what what's in the, the the poem. But I guess the I guess there's no way to describe that really without somebody reading reading it. Um, yeah, it's a very complex poem. Shakespeare is a terrific poem, and Shakespeare's not only a great poet; he's a, he's a great thinker. I think he is. is his intelligence is enormous and superb. It, uh, he deals with complex ideas in the most uh, effortless way. I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So it's a, it's a, well, it's a lo- lovely bit of poetry, and I was very much appreciated uh, your bringing that in into your book. But somehow the, the, the general burden of the book, if, you may, if I might ask you to summarize a bit, is, the, is to try to argue for the significance of the truth and despite the vagueness of the concept. Yes. Well... You know, I, I, I feel that I left something out of that book, uh, something important. At least, I, I'm not sure I left that out entirely, but I didn't give it the emphasis that I think that it uh, it ought to have. I spent most of the time, most of my effort in that book, uh, talking about how, how valuable the truth is in, in the conduct of practical affairs, that we have to know the answers to questions that we're dealing with. Uh, we can't build bridges without knowing, you know, having having real information. Uh, about the strength of materials and, and such things. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of social control or of, of uh, political uh, in- influence. It's a matter of fact. Uh, and I spent a lot of time on that sort of thing, on the pra- pragmatic value of right. truth, which is, of course, important, yeah. and I don't, I don't want to take that back at all. But there's another aspect to the truth that I don't. Maybe I didn't emphasize it because I don't really know quite enough. I don't really know, don't know well enough what to say about it. But knowing the truth is a matter of of what should I say about uh, clearing your mind so that the object appears without interference from what's going on inside of you. Hmm. It's a matter of being. Um, uh, I don't know what to what to call it. Uh, um, not indifferent, but uh, um, your own feelings don't count. Your own thoughts don't count. Your own opinions and inclinations and preferences don't count. It's only the nature of the object that counts. And this kind of um, clarity or objectivity, uh, selflessness, I suppose one might say, of leaving yourself out of things, is, I think, not only uh, essential to... Uh, determining the, the real truth about things, but it's a very, uh, I hesitate to use the term, but in fact it's a spiritually uh, valuable experience, this, um, this selflessness, this uh, 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 paying attention to something other than yourself in, in, in determining what yeah. to think or what to believe. Uh, and I think that that is, 
I hardly know to say what to say about it more than to say that it's a very valuable experience, uh, which I think, uh, which I wish I had uh, been able to say more about. Well, I think those of us who are in the hard sciences appreciate that sort of. Well, from the very beginning, when we were, you know, when I was a kid, you know, thinking about things, I was always, always worrying about the very concrete, scientific, or you know, mechanical yeah. things. Yeah. How often every day do we say, "What's really going on here"? <laughs> I mean, it's a very uh, yeah. common uh, experience for an academic in research, yeah. right? Yeah. Scratching your head, trying to figure out what the real, what's really, what's really happening in a given situation, what the real, what the real facts are. And in order to find out what the real facts are, to find out what's going on here, you have to forget about yourself. Right. And focus attention only on the objective reality of things. Right. So, um, well, do we have any more, any more things that we want to bring up? But we've been talking to Professor Harry Frankfurt, uh, retired professor of philosophy from Princeton. He's gotten two very interesting books out on bullshit, I'll use the correct title, and on truth. And uh, highly recommend. They're beautifully written books. Uh, and... Um, one is on Knopf and one is on Princeton University Press. Uh, yeah. Listeners can, right. can, uh, can pick them up there. Uh, actually, if I may say so, they're, uh, they're prime candidates for Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> well, go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what, what I, what, they're, they're really quite delightful books, and I really enjoyed reading them. Okay, well, uh, I think that will uh, wrap, up, uh, wrap up this segment with Professor Frankfurt. Uh, thank you very much for uh, appearing on Left Out, and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to uh, future writings from you as well. Thanks very much. Oh, please, check, please check out the webpage. We'll put up the, uh, we'll, uh, it's called leftout.info, L-E-F-T-O-U-T dot info. And you'll be able to hear the program and, and uh, read the notes we've written as well. Very good. Okay, thank you very okay, much, Professor thank Frankfurt. Bye-bye. We'll take a uh, brief uh, musical break, and we'll be back uh, shortly with uh, some more topics for discussion and uh, hopefully for from your input. Welcome back to Left Out. You can give us a call at 412-268-9728, or you can go to our chat room, left space out. It's an AOL chat room. Or you can mail bob at leftout.info. So the next topic uh, I wanted to mention was um, there's a, uh, well, there's a, uh, some issues still still pending regarding the voting system in this country. Um, and uh, there's a, uh, well, there's a bill in Congress uh, by Congressman Rush Holt, which I think is probably stuck in committee, which would have forced, at least by 2012, uh, the uh, elimination of uh, the touchscreen voting machines. But the reason I'm mentioning this now is because the, um, there's an article a couple of days ago in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review uh, about voting machines and stuff, and the fact that the voting machines we use here in Allegheny County are, in fact, the same machines that were used in Sarasota, Florida, which had 15,000 undervotes, which changed the outcome of an election. Uh, they've never actually explained definitively how that could have happened, but 15,000 people went to the polls and didn't vote for the congressperson. In that county alone, in other counties, uh, for the same election, they had nowhere near that undervote rate. So it's clearly something to do with the setup of the machines or something. So uh, they interviewed me for this, this article in the Tribune Review, and we'll put a link to it on our webpage, but I wanted to read the quote. Uh, my quote, it says, Touchscreen machines are bad for voting said one of the plaintiffs, Daniel Slater, 53 of Squirrel Hill, a Carnegie Mellon University computer science professor. They're too vulnerable to both machine errors and calibration errors, as well as nefarious manipulation of the vote. So that was my quote. Um, and I just want to explain that one po point of that. The first sentence, touchscreen machines are bad for voting. Seems like kind of a blanket statement, but I can give you about a one-minute proof that this is, this is true. Um, so I'll, give you, I'll explain my, my reasoning here. So um, most people have decided that you need, a, you need a paper trail, that you have to have some sort of paper record of a vote. You can't just trust the electronic bits floating around in the machines to be a, way, a correct way of storing and, and tabulating the vote. So once you've decided you're going to have a, a paper trail, now you have to de deal with connecting the touchscreen machine with a paper trail. So now what, happens, what has to happen to have voter intention recorded, you have to have the touchscreen machine, the voter votes on the touchscreen machine, it prints out a piece of paper that represents the vote, the voter then has to look over this piece of paper, compare that paper re recording of his or her vote to what he or she wanted to do. So that creates an extra step in the voting process. It creates an extra step in the process and a confusing step because the voter has already specified 
his or her preferences. So why does he do? Why is he or she doing that same thing again? So uh, it's confusing to the voter, and plus, most voters aren't even going to bother to check it anyway because of that, for that exact reason. So now we're stuck with this uh, conundrum. We've got these wonderful voting touchscreen machines, which are so easy to use. You just touch the screen. It's wonderful. But now you have to go to a paper trail because of this problem with the, the bits not being adequate to record the vote. Well, now you've, got, now you've suddenly created a much more ugly process of voting. It's two steps, confusing to the voter. Mm. So the alternative is to use an optical scan system where the voter specifies the vote on a piece of paper and marking the ballot. The voter then sticks it into a reader. If the voting is, is, is done illegibly or it can't be recorded for some reason, multiple votes for the same election, there's something wrong with it, the, mach- the machine immediately rejects the paper, gives it back to the voter. The voter says, it rejected me. I can vote. I, get to, I have to vote again. I have to fix it. Um, in that way, and then, you, then, of course, if the vote is correctly counted, it's kept in a, in a, in a ballot box. And now we have the voter's intent, as the voter indicated on this piece of paper, stored in the in, in the ballot box. So you completely eliminate this weird redundancy of having to check a paper trail. It's simpler for the voter. It's actually cheaper because you don't have to have touchscreen machines. You can have one scanner for reading the votes for a whole bunch of different voters. So it's 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 just overall a win-win situation. But it's going to take a, a while, apparently, before we figure that out, and before the government figures that out and starts doing the right thing. Yeah, I remember in the uh, run-up to the uh, decision to buy the current voting machine amongst uh, w- some an organization that you would think would be uh, largely a neutral party, namely the editorial board of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, was coming out in favor of touchscreen voting machines. They, they were, this is called begging the question, right? The, the question is, what sort of machines, voting machines, should we have that would, amongst other criteria, provide accessibility? Ability to people with handicaps, and as well as provide integrity for the for the uh, for for uh, provide for the integrity of the voting process, and they were saying, oh, well, you know, the, uh, we should be getting touchscreen voting machines as soon as possible. Well, that, sorry, that's not <laughs> that right. is not the criterion. The criterion was to find voting equipment that would prove to be accessible and also reliable and trustworthy, and so on, to protect the integrity of elections. What we got um, was uh, everyone uh, knows by now, having used them. A, for the last couple of elections, um, complete rubbish. I mean, the machines we have at the moment. And one of the uh, interesting and annoying side effects of these particular machines, as, as I've noticed uh, in my voting place, and I think other people have noticed as well, is that uh, a loss of privacy in voting, that you're standing right out there in the open and people are crawling behind you, you know, at least where I vote, uh, uh, you know, there's a several machines in a row, and let's say I'm they're in one machine. They're not literally crawling, they're, but they're, 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 yeah, they're, they're walking behind around, you yeah. and coming around while they go to their machine or the various poll workers looking over your shoulder and so on. And one of the reasons for this, uh, ironically, is they're worried that if they had a private voting booth, because you, you wonder, like, well, how come they don't have something like, you know, old-style phone booth or something like that that you could step into? They're worried that you might tamper with the machine because they know perfectly <laughs> well it's possible to tamper with this machine. Okay. And so it's it's ludicrous that it's even less private if you're concerned about that. Like, I, I don't really much care if someone, you know, sees how I vote because I'm perfectly willing to tell everyone how I voted. I think we know anyway, how you vote by but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bashful about my political views, uh, and so uh, about stating my political views. But in any case, the um, uh, but but I think a lot of people do feel uh, you know uncomfortable about that, and it's just ludicrous. It's it's something that has been forced on us by the inferior technology. Not to mention, and this will this will take a little while to come out, is the uh, the inherent uh, cost of maintaining. Uh, such equipment because the the great thing about the old lever machines i mean i will grant fully that in terms of accessibility for people with handicaps of various kinds they were not good and we'll we'll grant that everyone knows that that's a big part of the reason why they had to be changed but setting aside that particular point uh the rest of it i mean the i think the machines are like 50 years old i mean they last forever there's no right. there's no issue of maintenance with those machines because they work by very basic mechanical means the same with these uh, scanning devices i mean it's a pencil and paper and then it's a scanner and if the the scanners do break but they're not being used uh you know the same way that the uh, that these so-called right. touchscreen voting machines are being used well also by the way you, you mentioned accessibility that the way to deal with that with the, with the um, the paper, uh, you know, um, scanner ballots, uh, 
Yeah, suppose I have, scan valves, suppose that I can't write. Let's say, machine, let's say, suppose I have. Th- then a, you have a touchscreen machine, a neuro- neurological problem or something. I'm not able yeah. to write. What, what do you there's do? There's a there's a special machine called an Automark machine where you put in one of the paper ballots mm-hmm. and you specify your vote <clears throat> by whatever means is most appropriate for you, like using audio, using using a touchscreen, using I don't know what else. If you're Stephen Hawking, you would use do something. Your mouth in some I, yeah, way, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and then it then it just simply marks the ballot with your choices, and then you then somebody or you or somebody has to put that into the into the um, the, right. the vote recounter. So, so the, the interesting thing there, which is uh, uh, is the complete separation of the instruments by which you re- you cast your vote and the instruments by which they're counted and recorded. Right. And in many of these machines, they're completely uh, lumped together. And as a basic principle of engineering, it's com- it's a complete atrocity. I mean, there's no reason. The, the whole apparatus of the user interface, regardless of whether it's touchscreen or marks and the da 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 da, whatever the method would be, has nothing to do with is completely separable from the mechanism for recording uh, and, 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 and auditing and maintaining an audit trail of the voting. And so the kind of thing that you're proposing with paper uh, ballots, the, the paper itself is an audit trail and the reading it is a pretty, pretty minor thing. I mean, it's not very difficult to build an optical scan. Uh, a reader, and it just has nothing to do with the whole mi- apparatus that is necessary right. for actually creating that ballot. Let's say, as you mentioned a moment ago, someone may need assistance in marking the ballot, some may not, uh, and it's a completely separable issue. But many of these voting machines, like the, what are they called, something Ivotronic or what yeah, is the that? The Ivotronics, that's, that's what we, we, that's use, what we yeah. use here, yeah. The, these crummy things have everything packaged up into one one uh, rather ugly and awkward to use package with all of these, uh, with all of the attendant uh, complications. Now, speaking of voting, another issue that is uh, coming up uh, next Tuesday, as, uh, as, as everyone knows, is the uh, the uh, primary elections are coming up uh, on Tuesday in Pittsburgh, in the city of Pittsburgh and surrounding area for uh, for uh, county council and judge retention and so on. And I, of course, uh, encourage all of our listeners to make sure that they take the trouble to go out and vote. In particular, uh, the way politics works in, in, in Pittsburgh, really the mayoral election for all practical purposes is to be held next Tuesday, even though officially the election won't be until uh, next November, so a year from now. Um, is it almost a year from now? Oh, sorry, two years will be after that. So, but this is a this is a uh, excuse me. This is a pardon me. I'm making a mistake. Uh, let me correct myself. We have a mid uh, special election resulting from the fact that, that the previously elected mayor Bob O'Connor was died while in office, as everybody knows. And we're having a special election. Although the uh, original position of the uh, current uh, temporary mayor Luke Ravenstall was that we shouldn't have to have a special election. He should be he should be in office for the remainder of O'Connor's term. Uh, that has uh, that was quickly overturning courts. We're having an election on Tuesday for those who live in the city of Pittsburgh uh, to to vote on mayor. And uh, I can say, speaking for myself, uh, I feel faced with a uh, rather serious dilemma, and this is one that's been discussed quite a lot in the newspapers. I've certainly heard things on talk radio, on various political blogs I read, which is what to do. Because, uh, and I will, again, speaking for myself, uh, in, in my opinion, Luke Ravenstahl is completely unacceptable as a mayoral, a mayoral candidate. I mean, his behavior since being in office has demonstrated, in my mind, uh, abject dishonesty and corruption in which he was, for example, taking uh, gifts from uh, developers in town with which the city does business, going to New York City on their nickel to uh, see, you know, to see professional sports games, staying at the Gramercy Hotel, then coming back and denying that he did that, and then correcting his denial and saying he couldn't remember where he stayed, and so on. I mean, to my mind, well, the, the guy, the guy displays, influence. he just reeks dishonesty. And so in my, in my opinion, uh, Ravenstall is not an acceptable candidate. And now here comes the, the, the dilemma, of course, because um, the, uh, the alternatives are – there are several alternatives, actually. Um, but the principal alternative, the most well-known and, uh, alternative, is the Republican candidate, a guy named DeSantis. Now, I wouldn't say that DeSantis has impressed me either, although not having he's never had elected office, so I have – no, nothing on which to base any judgment about his behavior in elected office, whereas I do with Ravenstall. So there's an there's an asymmetry there. 
but uh, it seems that as a as a practical matter, the one could also vote for uh, minor party candidates. I remember in the last mayoral election, I personally voted for uh, for Titus North, who was running on the Green Party for mayor, uh, because I was did not wish to vote for uh, Bob O'Connor, nor did I wish to vote for any Republican candidate. And, uh, and this time around, uh, maybe I'll be forced into the same thing, although, to my knowledge, Titus North is not running. Well, Dave Tessiter is uh, running. But Tessiter is running, yes. yes, and he's been actually a guest on Left Out, has he not? Yes, he has. Um, so we, there's one, that's one alternative. But the other alternative that many of us are facing is the prospect of voting for a Republican. And uh, this is uh, creating uh, within me, certainly, and I think with many of our listeners, a tremendous uh, cognitive dissonance because uh, my feeling was uh, that would be the day I would ever I would ever vote for a Republican. But the question is what to do. And I wonder amongst our listeners, what are you, at least those of you who live in the city of Pittsburgh, uh, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to vote for Ravenstall? If you are, why? Because I would uh, like to hear any good reason to vote for Ravenstall because mm-hmm. I can't think of a single yeah. one. Um, if you're going to vote for DeSantis, uh, why and how are you How are you resolving that in your mind? Maybe you always vote Republican, that's easy. Or maybe you ordinarily vote Democrat, that's the more interesting case uh, for our purposes to understand what you're, how you're coming to terms with that. Or you're going to vote for David Tessiter or I think there's one or two other minor candidates as well um, who, who are running. Um, so if you'd like to give us a call, that's uh, 412-268-9728 or you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info Info, we can monitor your email uh, during the show in case you are bashful about appearing on the air. So, uh, what other things do you have uh, on on the plate uh, today? You had a couple of other. Yeah, I have quite topics. a few. Quite a few other things. If you notice on our webpage at leftout.info, you can uh, look at a number of links. We have two articles that I personally or recently ran across and found interesting. A um, couple a uh, couple of small points. Uh, one is I enjoyed last week and would like to. Uh, like to mention uh, mention uh, last week that the uh, our supercilious Secretary of State uh, Condoleezza Rice uh, finally deigned to appear before the Senate, uh, excuse me, the House Foreign Relations Committee uh, to uh, to acquiesce to the their uh, mandated oversight role uh, in in over, overseeing our foreign foreign policy. Up till uh, very recently, she has been. Uh, and it's uh, considered beneath her to uh, to account for herself. So she, for reasons known only to her, decided to go up on the hill and to talk about our foreign policy, displaying either uh, mendacity or incompetence or both, depending on your point of view. But when she sat down, one thing I would like to mention before getting to the substance of her remarks, when she sat down, uh, she was confronted by a Code Pink activist. Uh, Code Pink has, been, has become one of those... Um, one of the uh, one of the organizations that people like uh, Bill O'Reilly love to vilify, along with uh, with Move On. Uh, I, I presume he regards Code Pink as being uh, some sort of part of the uh, the George Soros led uh, left wing plot to take over the world. Uh, he, uh, but there was a Code Pink activist. A Code Pink, by the way, being a uh, one of the principal uh, anti war organizations, anti Iraq war organizations, active today, uh, who uh, had blood, so to speak, actually paint or something on her hands. She had bloody hands, uh, metaphorically, symbolically speaking, and confronted uh, Condoleezza with her bloody hands and accused her of being a, a war criminal. And she was immediately uh, ejected and arrested. Arrested for what? I don't know. And I have no idea whether they're continuing to charge her. I couldn't find any uh, information on that immediately before the show. Um, but it's the usual thing uh, in the United States these days. And this will bring me to my other point about Condoleezza Rice. But it's the usual thing is that, you know, you can only exercise your rights of free speech, uh, you know, in the appropriate free speech zone, which is uh, generally, you know, three miles away in some isolated spot. Uh, in the Bush administration because, uh, you know, it's really uh, uh, they shouldn't have to be confronted with reality or with people like Condoleezza Rice or uh, or George uh, W. Bush who live in a little uh, bubble of their own making. Um, so she was dragged out and arrested, and I'm proud of her. And I uh, ask the listeners, uh, have a look. If you look at Code Pink for Peace, where four is the digit four, codepinkforpeace.org uh, has quite a number of press releases about their various activities. They've been involved in so quite a few a, of these things. But they, they have a house in Washington, apparently. They're renting a house, or they own a house there. And okay. you can go down and, and uh, spend some time there just doing working with them, going to all the committee hearings and stuff like that, Great. holding signs and wearing 
pink clothes and Great. you know all the stuff they do. And I mean, I've seen them many times behind whoever's testifying. I mean, when <clears throat> gosh, who was it? I mean, I think when they were doing some of the, uh, the U.S. attorney scandal testimonies, uh, they they were <clears throat> behind them with. Wearing signs and funny clothes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Very yeah. visible there. Yeah, but well, they still haven't resolved the um, the new appointment for the uh, for Attorney General who is uh, who is unable to determine for himself whether waterboarding is a form of torture. Uh, many many commentators have uh, have suggested that he be subjected to it for until such time as he decides to, as he can make up his mind. <laughs> well, that's that's nasty, Bob. We 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 don't we don't advocate torture. That, 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 at least I don't. That is to anybody. But going back to kind of Lisa Rice, so she adopted her usual uh, haughty uh, airs about her when in the presence of a of uh, being confronted with reality, and uh, you know considered it with uh, disdain the uh, activist from Code Pink who was confronting her with her crimes. But ironically enough, the week before, uh, I have a headline here: Rice criticizes Putin's concentration of power, which, if it weren't so, uh, if it weren't so serious, would be would be outrageously funny. It it's uh, incredible the nerve of this person. So she was uh, going to uh, uh, was uh, in Moscow and was uh, criticizing the uh, Putin Vladimir Putin's concentration of power. Now I'll mention that Vladimir Putin, you know, that uh, George Bush looked into his soul. You'll recall and uh, and 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 informed us good approvingly that he is really yeah. uh, a kindred spirit to George Bush, which he may very well be. But uh, despite the approval from from George Bush, who has examined his soul. Uh, Condi found, found fit to criticize uh, the way in which elections are conducted in uh, in the Soviet Union and the concentration of power, the inhibitions uh, on the rights of free speech, uh, and uh, and uh, several other issues, uh, which I'm trying to find the quotation for here at the moment, without the, without the slightest the slightest uh, sense of irony whatsoever at the preposterousness of her position in a country that has is sh- in an administration that is shredding the constitution that is illegally invading other countries that is torturing prisoners in violation of the uh, Geneva accords and on and on and right. on imposing domestic surveillance uh, and so on and they're criticizing Putin well Putin certainly has plenty to be criticized I wouldn't I don't I for one have not looked into his soul but I I have little doubt of what I would see there if I if I were to if I were to have the privilege so it's not a question of whether Putin is a good guy, what is a question of? Look what the Bush administration has done to us. They've made a laughing stock of the idea that the United States could criticize the human rights record of right. the Soviet Union. In days gone by, you know, when we were growing up, well, the one thing that uh, you know you could kind of hang on to was the fundamental moral superiority of the of most of the U.S.'s uh, uh, of the U.S.'s position in the Cold War, because you could look. I mean, I grew up thinking. And knowing, you know, look at what happens to political dissidents in uh, in uh, in the Soviet Union. They get locked up in some, you know, prison camp in like Romania, geez, or Poland or uh, Siberia somewhere. And and where were we locking up prisoners and abusing them? But in Romania and in Poland, uh, mm-hmm. as far as I know, not <laughs> Siberia yet. Um, it's it's the situation is ludicrous. We've lost such a tremendous amount because of these incompetent and criminal elements that are running running our government uh, but it was uh, quite a quite a precious thing to hear of all people Condoleezza right. Rice criticizing Putin for uh, their the human the human rights record of which we really uh, at this moment have a uh, little uh, little room to criticize I would rather uh, see us criticizing our, our see her criticizing our own government so it was really uh, an interesting point anyway to point out it's too bad that it's so serious because if it weren't it would be quite comical so uh, did you uh, want to you had a selected a youtube uh, a song right uh, yeah, do we have time to what should we do that or uh, do we have the technology available is it ready to roll it's or, ready to roll yes we're ready to roll okay Let's, so we have a some of you may have heard there's a recently uh uh uh, 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 new song out. Oop, I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, I'll get you the info on it uh, afterward, uh, but our listeners might might uh, might enjoy. Uh, we'll play that for you for a couple of minutes. So we be better if we were all Christians? Yes. We should just throw Judaism away and we should all be Christians. Yeah. We just want Jews to be perfected. When I was growing up, I was very insecure. Didn't know where I fit into this world. 
As I grew older, I found my place And finally my nose grew into my face Then I saw Ann Coulter on the TV screen And she said, if you want to be perfect, you should be just like me Mom said she's a whore, Dad said she's stalled for attention She's got the hottest Adam's apple at the Republican Convention. We just want Jews to be perfected. Perfect me, make me petty. I want to be hateful like Ann Coulter. Convert me to Christianity. I want to be perfected. We could take care of Iran so that they couldn't build a transistor radio. Just like Ann Coulter. I was going to have a few comments on the other Democratic presidential candidate, John Edwards, but it turns out that you have to go into rehab if you use the word faggot. I know I'm just a Jew, but we could be best friends forever. Want to come over later and watch Seinfeld together. You can teach me to hate liberals, the New York Times and what they say. We could prank call John Edwards and tell him he's gay. I would do anything to be just like you. Fed X me to heaven like a perfected Jew. Oh, and it's not my fault, I just have to obey. I feel I'm getting so close. Oh, won't you show me the way? Perfect me. Make me petty. I want to be hateful like Ann Coulter. Help me ignore civilian casualties. Anyone named D. Hussein Obama should avoid using hijack and religion in the same sentence. Like so you have no problem referring to Arabs as camel jockeys. We have sure moved away from the day when they called them krauts and nips. Oh, you're so beautiful, Ann. Just like Ann I like it when you touch your hair in interviews, just like Anne. So now we're going to invoke the fact that our husbands died and you can't criticize us. These women got paid, they ought to take their money and shut up about it. Just like Anne Coulter. So it's a brief, uh, it's a very popular song on uh, YouTube at the moment. Uh, you might, I uh, thought you, you, might, you might enjoy it. Uh, it's called uh, Perfected. I want to be perfected like Ann Coulter, uh, sung by uh, 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 Leah Kaufman. Excuse me. It was a, it was a music and vocals. So uh, <laughs> I thought you might enjoy that. <laughs> so going back to our uh, discussion topics for today, um, another uh, point uh, that uh, is an article we have a reference to on our uh, left out web page is an uh, article in the London Review of Books uh, this month. Uh, on 18th of October edition of the London Review of Books uh, by Jim Holt called It's the Oil, uh, which is sort of uh, saying, well, stating the obvious. But more and more often, uh, many of you will have noticed that uh, various people are beginning to admit uh, what uh, well, what is the uh, the obvious fact about uh, about the Iraq War? Uh, most recently, uh, the one that I've heard most recently was from Alan Greenspan uh, in his uh, recent uh, biography autobiography. Uh, his uh, his uh, um, the word I'm looking for uh, his uh, memoirs is memoirs. what I was looking for. Uh, he said. Uh, uh, quote, I am saddened that it is politically inconvenient to acknowledge what everyone knows. The Iraq war is largely about oil. Now, you'll, you'll recall quite vividly how vehemently, vehemently, viciously this was denied by the right-wing noise machine during the uh, run-up to the uh, Iraq War and in the early stages of the Iraq War. Right. Uh, Anybody who said that was considered a total a crackpot. crackpot, like you, for example. Uh, right and it's uh and yet so what Holt is doing and it's a, is an interesting uh uh it's an interesting article for this reason is he uh he does raise the question which comes up uh which uh, we has come up often on left out and come up in a number of circumstances of course uh which is uh this uh, whole idea that it, it's still you know not clear uh, to me anyway, you know, what the true story is, you know, with the Iraq invasion, because if you look at what a colossal catastrophe it is from many points of view, including not least of which uh, nearly uh, we must be pushing 4,000 American soldiers killed 
not to mention tens of thousands of Iraqis, many innocent Iraqis killed in this war, not to mention the refugee uh, problem, like the refugee problem, problem, not to mention the something on the order of $600 billion so far uh, being spent on this. You might wonder, so, you know, what were these clods thinking? You know, what was really going on? And the, the burden of Holt's article is simply to say, well, uh, you know, he quotes, for example, uh, an article in the New York Review of Books by Thomas Powers, um, who expresses his bafflement. He says, uh, what's particularly odd, he wrote, is that there seems to be no sophisticated professional insider's version of the thinking that drove events. And uh, that's, I've often commented on that. My general take in these kind of discussions is it's still not clear what the true reasons were. What we do know, uh, in, the, in the words of Harry Frankfurt, is everything we were told was complete BS, and that was obvious at the time. And so Holt makes the argument that, well, whatever the true reasons may be, one thing you can see is that the only way in which he can think of to come up with a calculation under which all of this is worth it is simply to postulate that the point was to control the Iraqi oil. That is, that the premise of the the real purpose of the invasion is a permanent occupation uh, of Iraq, and to use that as a basis for further, at least threats and possibly invasions or attacks on neighboring countries. Um, many people uh, suspect that we are gearing up for an attack on Iran, for example, uh, because of statements made by the Bush administration being pushed along by brilliant strategists like Norman Podhoritz, who's uh, we've seen very full well how, how uh, insightful he is and his views have been on uh, determining the course of Middle East affairs as pushing up uh, pushing uh, Iraq, uh, excuse me, pushing Cheney to invade Iran or to attack Iran. Uh, oh, he's, he's now uh, he's now Giuliani's foreign policy advisor, and right? And he's uh, Rudy Giuliani's foreign policy advisor. Do you need to know anything else about Rudy Giuliani besides that? But Holt uh, makes the argument that well, if you tote it all up, when you look at the uh, when you look at what's really at stake here, which is uh, on the order of uh, I'm trying to get the number he has here. I think he uh, he says I think he calculates something on the the order of uh, ten trillion dollars worth of uh, control over that oil that uh, Iraq uh, uh, that Iraq control a uh, thirty trillion he he estimates that the actual cost you know a few hundred billion dollars and you know three four five six thousand American lives and untold number of other lives is worth it in a sense if you look at it uh, strictly as a proportion of the thirty trillion dollars in oil wealth that we will gain by hmm. having control over it so that's the burden of his article I encourage our listeners to have a look at it it's uh, it's an interesting analysis from a just a hard-nosed, uh, straight calculation point of view. Because otherwise, you know, it is rather difficult to, uh, to know, like, what are, the, what are the real reasons. It's one thing to know that the stated reasons are false. It's another thing to know what the, what the real reasons are. And I've often wondered, uh, I've often wondered when, when and how that will all come out. And anyway, it certainly seems that the oil has a hell of a lot to do with it. Well, I think we're we're just about out of time. Um, we should uh, thank our producer John Katruba, and um, you can stay tuned for the next program. It's uh, after, after the bell. After the bell um, on WRCT. And we'll wrap up today's program. Thank you all for uh, listening to Left Out. We'll be back in uh, two weeks' time. And thank you to Harry Frankfurt for appearing on today's program.